This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Jim Brown, one of the first guests we ever featured for this show, arguably not only the greatest football player of all time, but one of the most socially significant athletes of the past century. Here it is right now, 232 pounds, six feet, two inches. I can beat you in a 40 and I got an attitude. As star of the Cleveland Browns in the 1950s and 60s, he was an unstoppable force. Art Modell said things were done to you on the field that if players did them today, they'd be arrested. Players make a lot of sacrifice. The real great players make a lot of sacrifice. But at the top of his game, he left the NFL for Hollywood, breaking down racial barriers along the way. You filmed the first on-camera interracial love scene with actress Raquel Welsh. It was difficult, probably more difficult for her. From his relationship with Martin Luther King Jr. to his controversial activism. Anytime you have an influence in your society and you're not under control, there's a fear that you might get people to do the wrong thing. And scrapes with the law that have scarred his public image. If you went out and asked 100 people about me, the most positive things they would know is that I played football, made a couple movies, beat women, and was a menace to society. In December 2010, we traveled to Brown's Hollywood Hills home and started our conversation by talking about his foundation. Today, you run the American Foundation. What led to you initially deciding to develop it? The American Foundation for Social Change really was uh, something I felt was needed because of gang violence, because of uh, schools not standing up to what they should stand up to, kids being denied safety in their neighborhoods, and kids being denied the kind of education they should get. So the American Foundation for Social Change was formed to deal with the violence in the streets and the education in the schools. I am the founder and president, but I can only do what I do. It is the people that adopt my curriculum and the philosophy and the ones that have an interest already in their community and the education of young people and the, uh, the safe haven for them in their community, not to be afraid of gang violence. Whether it's somebody on the street or somebody in jail, how do you teach a criminal how to change their life? Well, it isn't a matter of teaching a person how to change their lives. It's giving them an opportunity, if they want one, to learn certain skills. And those skills would be problem solving, decision making, goal setting. Uh, then you can get into the technical things of how to do an interview for a job. All of these things are fundamentals that are usually applied by mothers and fathers. But so many of our kids uh, today don't have mothers and fathers, particularly fathers. So we become surrogates in helping them develop those particular skills that they can use uh, every day in their life. All of these things are fundamentals that allow a person to take responsibility for themselves. From your experience, to what extent do you find the individuals generally want and have a strong desire to learn those skills? Well, uh, there's a thing called communication and there's a thing called reputation. You have to have a reputation uh, that people believe that you're sincere. Uh, 
or they believe that you're honest. And on a personal level, my reputation in the inner cities across the country and in the prisons, people believe what I say. And so uh, I get an entree because of that. And then it's the uh, approach that I take in giving them respect, listening to them, identifying with them as individuals, not just a group of, of people, a group of inmates, a group of gangsters. And uh, those things work really well to introduce them to the education. See, once you have the communication uh, and listen to them and their concepts, then you can talk to them about your concepts. And if your concepts make sense and they see success, the possibility of success in using them, or you have examples already of people that have overcome diversity, or not diversity, but, but problems, and these people are now doing well, particularly people that are in their peer group, they then find it uh, uh, enticing to uh, listen to you and to become a part of that educational process. The Bloods and the Crips, two arch-rival gangs, violent, unafraid of killing people. You invited both gangs to your house at the same time. Why decide to do that? Well, it isn't a matter of the Bloods and Crips because that's in general. There are many different kinds of Bloods and many different kinds of Crips. You invite those who are interested in coming. <laughs> and you invite the shot callers, those who are leaders. And when you put the invitation out there, you put it out there because you know some people want to make a change in their life. The ones that don't want to make a change, they're not coming. So the ones that want to make a change, they're coming to see what you are presenting. And uh, I knew that the only way I could be effective out there is to share my home and share my existence. I couldn't live two lives, go out and have a meeting with them somewhere, then never let them come to see my home or meet my family or give them that respect. So the respect of saying, come to my home and we'll sit down and we'll talk. And I'll listen to you, you listen to me. And let's see if we can do something about the problems that goes on out in that culture. Racism, it's something that you've encountered your entire life, especially early on when you were attending Syracuse University. And at one point, or maybe even many occasions, you were considering leaving the university, quitting football altogether. What led to you feeling that way? Well, racism is too big a subject today to talk about it at Syracuse, but I'll talk about it in my terms. Racism is alive today, more so than any time in the history of this country. And it's manifested, manifested itself in a subtle but dominant way. Now, I'm going to give you something that white folks uh, will cringe at. And <laughs> I'm so glad to have this platform to do it. Racism has been the most devastating thing in the history of America. Slavery was so dehumanizing, humiliating, profit-bearing, the business of it, 
the control of the slaves, the mental anguish, the physical degradation, the Willie Lynch syndrome of how to control human beings and turn them against each other is something that you see demonstrated in African-Americans today who dance in the end zone and who do all of these things that their forefathers were conditioned to do. The Walt Disney pictures dealing with the black crows and the Negro dialect. All of those things have been a history in our country. And people say, oh, things have changed. Well, with discrimination, it isn't a matter of the, the, the dominant power saying, oh, we're going to change over a period of time. It's like I'm going to change instantaneously because this is evil. This is raw. This is ugly. Now let me give you why I say it is so prevalent today. Forget racism, discrimination, all of that. Forget the races in the South and Mississippi you look, you portray and all of the rednecks and all, forget all of that. And take a thing called white supremacy. What is white supremacy? It's not an overt kind of thing that you see every day, but it is a position of power that is occupied by white men. And that power is never relinquished. That is a place of security, superiority, and you inherit that because of being a white male. In regards of what goes on and how much greatness there is among other people, they can never rise above your club. Most Caucasians inherit that position because simply of being white. So most good white folks grant you their goodness. <laughs> they, they feel that they accept you and they like you and they respect you. And they are doing this because they're good and you should be appreciative. So the most conflicts that you see in America among successful blacks that are usually called uh, arrogant or whatever, because they don't adhere to being validated. Uh, put that another way. Validation is rejected by a true man, whatever color he is. But white supremacy says that for you to be considered a person I respect and like, you must accept the fact that I, have, I can validate you. And that's the highest honor you can have is my validation. So the one thing I say to white supremacy, discrimination, and money and power is that you will never validate me. And if I am not popular, I will accept that. So when it comes to racism, once again, I wanted to explain to you my way of looking at it and bring it up to date and not deal with some stuff that happened at Syracuse a million years ago. 
how about one of your most memorable times with Martin Luther King Jr.? The Civil Rights Movement had a lot of leaders. Martin was his probably number one leader. And his philosophy was passive uh, resistance. And I am totally against passive resistance or nonviolence. Nonviolence is something that's applicable to all human beings. You know, all of us should not be violent. But that's not a movement. A movement is proactive. And so I admired his uh, courage and his sincerity, but I didn't think that nonviolence was a solution to the problem of inequality in America. I thought that uh, nonviolence meant that you'd march and sing and you would try to appeal to the consciousness of the same people that were, were uh, discriminating against you. So my concept was how can you get to the consciousness of a person that has no consciousness and who is relegating you to a second-class citizenship because of your color? So I thought economic development and a sense of cultural power would be a better way to fight because capitalism in America was riding high and you need resources. And as I looked at the Jewish community, they applied it fantastically. And as I looked around at the community, I mean the, the uh, Korean communities, they seemed to be applying it. And it seemed that people that took care of themselves and dealt with economic development and had high family values and didn't try to integrate would do a better job of integrating. But integration can't be your, your goal. And I'll give an example. If I want to live in a white neighborhood and they jack the prices up, but I want to integrate it for the sake of integrating it, I pay twice as much for the house. That's like paying twice as much to live with white folks. <laughs> I never thought that was very valuable, just living with white folks, I thought, to have my rights under the Constitution. And I would always say to Martin's people, you know, I'm a, of African descent, I'm an American citizen, I pay my damn taxes, and I want my rights. Underline that, and you can't challenge it, okay? I'm a citizen, you're a citizen, you pay your taxes, I pay my taxes, you get your rights, I get my rights. You were doing so much early on to create change, progress social issues, create opportunities, all the while the FBI was essentially spying on you. These were the J. Edgar Hoover days. Why do you think they were spying on you? I wasn't under control by anybody. Anytime you have an influence in your society and you're not under control, there's a fear that you might get people to do the wrong thing. So if I can lead a lot of young men today and they don't control me, then they watch out to make sure that I don't do something that is going to be incorrect for the society. That's what I think. I don't, what, I don't know. 
How did the FBI spying on you impact your work? Well, everything that the society did to uh, disrupt the work disrupted the work. You know, when you're trying to do the right thing, you're trying to get the resources and people are trying to stop you from doing what you're doing, even though it's the right thing, it makes it twice as hard. So I'll give an example of something. If you went out and asked a hundred people about me, I guarantee you 99% of them wouldn't know anything about my true activism. They'd never know I was uh, the President Rich Prize Company. They'd never know that I started the Black Economic Union. We started with 400 black businesses. They'd never know I worked for Pepsi-Cola for nine years. Uh, they would never know I went into the service as a second lieutenant, came out as a captain. They'd never know that I was elected student athlete in the 25th silver anniversary of the NCAA. Uh, they would not know any of those positive things. The most positive things they would know is that I played football, made a couple of movies. They would probably put the movies down, second B movies, and uh, beat women and was a menace to society. And you got a copy of their documents about them spying on you through the Freedom of Information Act. Yes. What did the documents say? It talked about my relation with the Nation of Islam. Uh, they had excerpts from speeches that I made. And their conclusion was he didn't sign to become a member of the nation, so he's not a member of the nation. They couldn't come up with anything. You know, he was in the company of Malcolm X, uh, but they were always accounting for what I did when I had a meeting with another activist or when I spoke, uh, uh, when I dealt with the Nation of Islam. But because I wasn't a member and I didn't do anything subversive, there wasn't anything they could truly say. So it was a wasted paper. <laughs> One person you are good friends with is New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick. What do you think of him as a coach? I think Bill is a great coach. I think he's a great man. He's a free thinker. And that gets him in trouble, but who cares? I, I know that I can count on him. And it comes out of integrity, our kind of integrity. And uh, he's a hell of a coach. What do you think makes him such an effective coach? He's smart. Start out with he's bright. You gotta be bright. You want something else? I'll tell you, bright, and let me tell you a story, man. Uh, he said speaking at your Can Foundation was up there emotionally with winning the Super Bowl. What does that mean to you to have him hold that in that high of regard? I think we became friends very quickly because we had the same principles, same types of principles. So when American reaches out to the heroes, 
Belichick will be right at the front of the line because he's been to the prison with me, he's been to the school with me, he's donated money, he's come to the fundraiser, he's there if needed, and he believes in us. He can't do any more than he's been doing, and he does it quietly because he believes. What about uh, money in college athletics, the strict rules the NCAA has with regards to giving money to student-athletes? What do you think of that? It's laughable, hypocritical, unreal, and uh, for the benefit of a few people. Why do you say that? It's identifying something as amateur and putting your rules to it. And those rules don't fit. And uh, the rules are almost set up to make people cheat. And they benefit uh, those who run the organization. And uh, the, they make huge amounts of money that go to the institutions, I guess. And it makes the institution stronger. But it does not build character in the players, the young players. It does not look out for their economic problems. It sets unrealistic standards that they have to live by, so a lot of them cheat. But then everybody knows that most people cheat because they don't have any other way to make any money. You know, so it's a mess. What do you think of the NFL now enforcing their existing rules regarding hits? The problem right now is that the NFL has to evaluate the physicality of the game. I think that uh, they have to really put a committee together and uh, that involve players, past players and present players and get their input and uh, get the input of coaches and study it and then come up with the rules. I don't think the people that are making the rules are necessarily qualified to make them. And therefore, there's a dissatisfaction among players because the rules don't always fit. And there's certain things you can't avoid in professional football. And there's certain things you can avoid. And if you've never played, you'll never know. I give you two things, to get rid of dirty players, okay, and to uh, hurting vulnerable people. We should not be allowed to hurt main people when they're vulnerable, and we should get rid of the dirty players. Then Browns owner Art Modell said things were done to you on the field that if players did them today, they'd be arrested for, likely alluding to the kicking, the eye gouging. I know you don't really like to talk about this, but following the game, when the adrenaline subsided, the most pain you had ever been in would be what? I don't remember uh, pain specifically. The thought was getting ready for the next game. You get ready for the next game. 
by doing everything you can do to attend to what's wrong with you. And it's not <clears throat> bravado, it's not uh, trying to be, you know, macho. It's a matter of nursing yourself back to health so that you can perform the next week. And that was the purpose of everything. So that's what I did because I didn't want to miss a game. And I wanted to uh, be able to perform each week. So it's not complicated. It's not heroic. It's just uh, obvious if I had something I couldn't play with, I wouldn't play. But obviously there are a lot of things you could sit out that you don't have to sit out. Players make a lot of sacrifice. The real great players make a lot of sacrifice. After a play, when you'd been tackled, you were always very slow to get up. Consistent though, why? Well, you get up the same time each time so that your enemy don't know when you're hurt or when you have to get up slow. And it gives you an advantage, that simple. You know, if one time you get up real slow and look like you're hurt, they're gonna come at you the next play and try to kill you. But if you get up slow every time, you conserve energy and you camouflage everything. Prior to a game, you've said you would always visualize plays. How so? Well, psychocybernetics is a, you know, art of the mind. Visualization is a part of it. And visualization, visualization creates repetition with a picture in your mind of going over and over a play and the possibilities that that play gives you. So therefore, when you run it in real life, it isn't unfamiliar. So if you run it over in your mind and you see the cornerback being kicked out and you know that you got to make that cut up the field, the middle linebacker's coming, you hope that the second guard can get to him. But you go with those things in your mind. It exercises your mind just like your body. You know, people always think of exercising your body, but you exercise your mind and you visualize how to do it, you know. And uh, you visualize yourself doing it. So it's familiar, that's all. You read Psycho-Cybernetics, you were a philosophy major. With regards to intimidating opposing players, during your pre-game warm-up, what would you do? Let them see me. Knowing that they've been told about me all week and how they have to watch out for me and how they have to plan to stop me and gang tackle me, then I challenge them by saying, this is the guy, man, take a look at me. It is right now, 232 pounds, six feet, two inches. I can beat you in a 40, and I got an attitude. And the attitude is you're gonna hit me and I'm gonna hit you. And uh, that's an attitude sport. That's why the guys are complaining now about the rules, because it's a thing about hitting, you know. And they always talk about the best football player and so forth. It's always a joke to me if best football player could be a football player that don't hit. <laughs> I laugh. But no, football is uh, a challenge of men. It's the next thing to war. It's not close to war, but it's the next civilized thing to war. And you test yourself all the time because if you're not strong enough, you give it up. 
I know you don't like reliving your career, so there are only two moments that I want to ask you about from your football career specifically. The first being the 1964 NFL championship between the Baltimore Colts, Cleveland Browns. I think coming into the game, the Colts were something like 21-point favorites, yet the final score was 27-0 Browns win. You said what you most recall from that game is what you didn't do. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because I think great players take a responsibility to set a standard of their own. And you know what you did and what you didn't do. And the good things you don't need to bring up because they're good. It's always the, the bad things that you have to correct. So in the game, I did two or three things that was just agonizingly bad, stupid. And I was like, damn, you know, I'm grabbing a goalpost and trying to pull myself over rather than reaching and put the ball against the goalpost. That's stupid. I'm breaking into the open and I've got two guys ahead of me and instead of accelerating past them and scoring, I'm waiting for them. Some guy comes from behind him, takes me down. Stupid. So those are the things I remember, things like that, because I don't like to play stupid. You know, it's one thing to get beat. It's one thing not to be able to do something, but to be stupid. A lack of intelligence, that's not good. Oh, lack of effort. I was speaking to your former teammate, NFL Hall of Fame running back, Bobby Mitchell, and I said, I know Jim doesn't like speaking about individual plays specifically, but is there one play you can tell me that you know he will definitely remember? And Mitchell said, okay, I'll give you one that I talk to Jim about every few times I see him. It was the Cleveland Browns playing the Chicago Cardinals. Uh, Final year the Cardinals were in Chicago, there was a fake handoff to you, a toss to him. What do you remember from there? Well, we, he tossed it back. In other words, we did a switch again. And uh, it was an example of two guys that were on the same page and didn't care who scored. Why is it a play like that that you really remember when individual plays you don't generally remember so much? Well, first of all, it was Bobby Mitchell was an exceptional human being, an exceptional runner, special gifts, and he was smart. And the only way that, that play could have occurred is both players have to, had to be intelligent. And it presented itself, and if you weren't intelligent, you would have missed it. It would have never happened. If you were selfish, it would have never happened. So it just showed that we were on the same page and made something like that happen. And I remember how he just exaggerated like he was going to take off and he <laughs> just like that. And uh, when you think of camaraderie and teams, that kind of a thing comes up because we were ahead of, we had everybody else on it. You know, it's like he saw it, I saw it, we saw it. And we executed it. You know, it had nothing to do with coaches, had nothing to do with the play. It was just something that should have been done at that time and it was done.
by 29 years old, you essentially had every meaningful offensive record for a running back. You had won the league rushing titles eight of nine years. You had an MVP. You had a championship. Summer of 1966, when you went off to Europe to film The Dirty Dozen, did you expect to return to professional football? Uh, no. My uh, deal was with Art that I was retired. But if they really needed me, and I would, I would consider coming back. But basically, I'm, I was finished. How important was it to you to retire on top? Well, I wanted to retire on time and under my conditions. And I wanted to take advantage of the fact that I had an opportunity to do movies. And that's what I did. And I always realized that an athlete should never stay around too long. And I saw certain athletes that did stay around too long. And it really tarnished their legacy. So I never wanted to stay around too long. And I always thought one day I'll ask me this question. I could say, look, here's my answer to everything. I was 29 years old. I played for the championship two years. We won it in 1964. I was MVP of the league. And I was uh, part of Dirty Dozen, getting ready to start a film with Raquel Welsh. <laughs> so that was my... And no one can counteract that particular kind of statement. It gives a man the power of his own self. And then you see someone hanging around too long and there's discussions, can this person play second string or could they be trade, you know, all of that. You eliminate that total conversation. You were at the top of the game when you left and you got to leave to make more money to act with pretty women and not get hit once a week either, which Absolutely. I would imagine never hurts. Yeah. In, Absolutely. In a late 1960s Sports Illustrated article, you said uh, spending a day doing a dramatic scene was more tiring to you than a 60-minute professional football game. How so? Well, the mental aspect of acting is... is tremendously draining. You can't fake it. And there's so much repetition. It's a very uh, difficult profession, acting. And uh, you got to go deep into yourself a lot. You know, and uh, it's very draining. While filming 100 Rifles, you filmed the first on-camera interracial love scene with actress Raquel Welsh. What was it like filming that on the first day of shooting? I wanted to, uh, it was difficult, and probably more difficult for her, but I wanted to uh, be a gentleman and uh, be professional. And uh, I didn't want it to be, the director kind of wanted me to rip her clothes off and I didn't want to do that. I wanted it to be more of a love scene. And, uh, I thought it was very difficult to do that on the first day, you know, but we had to do it, so. 
you've worked with the likes of Oliver Stone, Spike Lee, Gene Hackman, Al Pacino, Burt Reynolds over the years. Mm -hmm. The most personally satisfying role you've taken in film would be what? There are pieces from different films as an actor that I like. I like working with Pacino in Any Given Sunday at the bar. And we're both inebriated and talking because he's one of our great actors of all times. Uh, I like The Dirty Dozen because Charlie Bronson and I were like two leaders in our own way in that film. And I like Tick, Tick, Tick because I had to play sort of a victim person that needed other people to help me accomplish my goals. So I would say, no one film, if I had to pick the film that represented everything and was best in my career, it would be The Dirty Dozen. Boxing promoter Bob Arum told me that one day you came to Arum and said, you want to fight Ali. I know you refute that. What do you say to his comments, though? No, they were. I think Aaron wanted to promote a fight between Will Chamberlain and Ali, and I was going to manage Will and get well and get Customato to train him, and then uh, that fell through. So Aaron proposed to me, "Do I want to fight him?" And my basic comment, you got to be out of your mind, you know. You know, can't fight Ali, you know. So that's almost like comical. The heavyweight champ of the world, yeah. So no, I didn't come to him. He, he came to me, he breached it with me. Just as a promoter, he was trying to decide uh, what kind of gimmick he could come with to, to get box office, you know. You met on a movie set and ended up becoming good friends. What did you most respect about Ali? First of all, I liked Ali. You know, I liked him as a person. <clears throat> I thought he had a quick mind. He had a witty mind. He was a great physical champion, great physique, quickness, boxing skills. He loved people. You know, he helped people. And, uh, before he uh, was stripped of his crown, he was a, a great warrior for our society. He used to always want to go on walks through the neighborhoods. What do you recall from those walks? Well, and he would always say, hey, let's go take a walk. I say, walk where? <laughs> I was dumb and not as sensitive as he was at the time. And he said, look, just, just go talk to the people. I said, okay, so we walked through the ghettos and going to barber shops and grocery stores and he just talked to the people, you know. Here's a champ, you know, this is Jim Brown, he's a football player. And uh, we just say hello, you know. It was great, the people loved it. He was a people champion because he truly took time with people and cared about them. And he wasn't racial. He. Uh, he didn't uh, ignore white people or white kids. Just uh, love people. I spoke to Hugh Hefner uh, 
about you. Um, have spoke about how the 70s and 80s, the mansion was kind of like your second home. What was your social life like then? Hef was such a uh, gracious person. Misunderstood because of the sexuality, the belief in free sex and the Playboy uh, magazine. But he was a great humanitarian, you know, uh, a lot of charities and uh, very real about sex and sexuality. So, you know, I was up to mansion all the time, <laughs> along with Barry Gordy and Smothers Brothers and everybody else, Jimmy Connors, and it was a ball. You drive up to the rock at the gate and hit the button, the rock says, good evening, Mr. Brown. Come on in, the gates swing open. You go in, park your car, Girls everywhere. You might see Hef over there. I walk by, Hef, how you doing? Hi, Jimmy. I'm going his, my way, he's going his way. And you had 24-hour access. And uh, there were new girls coming in from all over the country. And uh, anything was okay between consenting partners. <laughs> so those were the days of Hollywood. What were... Jack Nicholson and Frank Sinatra like? Frank was a powerful individual in the business. Great leader, had the Rat Pack, and a great humanitarian, but very uh, difficult if he didn't like you. If he didn't like you, forget it. But if he liked you, he'd do anything for you. Jack Nicholson had a uh, great wit, you know. He used to always tell me, remind me that I was a guy that told him that uh, he danced like an African-American, danced like a, a black guy. And he took great pride in that. And he said, my reason was that he always was behind the beat. And black people dance behind the beat. White folks jump in front of the beat. <laughs> so he used to always remind me that we laugh but he was a great actor and, uh, you know, one of those kind of guys that you could talk about anything to. Hef also mentioned uh, the parties you used to have at your Hollywood Hills home here. What was the social life like here? Well, during those days, everything was about females. Every day it was about females, man. So it's like... We go to candy store, and then after two o'clock, the cars would be coming up the hill. The pool would be smoking. The girls would jump in. You know, no locked doors in the house. It was like a little Hugh Hefters, but very little. <laughs> uh, criticism that you've taken over the course of your life for either accusations that have been made against you or run-ins with the law, how fair do you think the criticism has been of you? Well, I don't look at criticism as being fair. I look at things being accurate. Fairness is not a part of it, the accuracy is a part of it. So when people are accurate, it is what it is. When they're not, you know, it's uh, unfortunate. So what I've done, I've done. What I didn't do, I didn't do. And uh, that's all I ask for, for things to be accurate. If, if I get accused of something, I go to court and I win it, then I, so, yeah, that's the best I can do. I can't convince uh, 
a court of uh, journalists that I didn't do something. Some of your like indiscretions with the law uh, in 78, charged with assault in 63, charged with assault and battery in 68, charged with assault and resisting arrests. And I guess cops found blood in your apartment and your girlfriend fell 20 feet off the balcony, hitting the ground below. In 85, arrested on rape charges. In 2000, convicted of vandalizing your wife's car. To someone who greatly admires all of the work you've done through your foundation, through public service, but is unable to reconcile that part of your life with the run-ins, with the law. I know you don't have to, but how would you explain that? You read off a piece of paper, charges and accusations, and then you brought it back to me. A charge is what? It's a charge, right? Why don't you talk about what I did? What have I been convicted of? I mean, Vandalism. I... That's what I've been convicted of, vandalism. If I admit that I've hit a woman, if I admit I've hit somebody, that's what I say. I admit it in the context of what, of what I did. I'm not taking a rap for a rap sheet unless I've had my day in court. Because if you have laws in this country, and these laws tell you that you have freedom because you are innocent until proven guilty. If you say to me, you've been found guilty of four things, do you agree with the verdict? I might say, yeah, on three of them, and one of them, no, or whatever I would say. But you've got a fact there of guilt being proven when everybody's had a chance to say what they have to say. Other than that, it's, it's garbage. But you've got to understand, man, inflammatory language, accused of rape. You know, I mean, damn. Accused of rape. Do you know what that sounds like? If, if I'm accused of something and the other lawyer throw it out before it gets to in a preliminary hearing, and what does that mean? This case is ridiculous. But I don't get that benefit of the doubt. I don't want to talk to somebody that's telling me about somebody fell 20 feet and all that and woo 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 or being accused of rape. When you said uh, when I was incarcerated six months, I answered, I got in a conversation, because I was, for vandalizing the That's a fact. Now, what else is a fact? The facts is that I didn't do nothing. <laughs> I didn't rape no damn body, or, and there's no blood on nothing, and no 20 feet somebody fell, and all that kind of mess, man. I've never written all the things that I've done in my life to assist people, and I don't do it. You know, because you do it. But when you try, people try to then take everything you've done and lump it into this and put it against this. It doesn't fit, man. Thanks for listening to my chat with Jim Brown. This wasn't the first time we sat down together. Head over to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger to see 
a much younger me interviewing the legend in all my awkward teenage glory. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you can help others discover it by taking a moment to leave a rating and review. Thanks again for listening.